Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm super excited for this week's Mind Key with the one and only Kieran Krishnan. Kieran, I was introduced through through a friend and is absolutely mind-blowing as he talks about the ecology of the gut and its role on our overall health. I was uh, super intrigued by the role of the gut because as I've done a lot of research as it relates to brain health after what's gone on with my father uh, and his dementia, I was uh, kept coming back to the gut because the gut is basically our second brain and it is the housing for our immunity and also a lot of the feel-good chemicals like serotonin. Um, and, and, and basically, I've recently done a course of antibiotics and I, and I had realized that with every course of antibiotics, you basically are almost kind of carpet bombing your gut. And I really wanted to rebuild and think about how can I create the most profound ecology for my gut. And Kieran is an incredible microbiologist, but also very accessible in terms of the way that he talks about very commonplace uh, strategies that we can put in place to optimize our health, our immunity, and also our happiness through the gut. So uh, without further ado, I'm, I'm super excited to present you with this, uh, this Mind Key with Kieran. And as a bonus, uh, I reached out to my friends at Thrive who actually have the uh, probiotic and prebiotic that I'm using as well as K2 to rebuild my gut. And they've uh, offered to give a discount to all Peak Mind listeners. So if you go to thriveprobiotic.com and put in Peak at checkout, you'll get a nice discount on any of their products if you decide to, uh, to check out some, some, some new probiotics. I'm using them. They're clinically proven and love them. So uh, check them out, thriveprobiotic.com. And without further ado, here is Kieran Krishnan. All right, I'm here with Kieran Krishnan. Kieran, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Michael. I always love an opportunity to wax and wane ph- philosophically and nerd out a little bit on uh, various <laughs> topics. So I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, so you are, for context, uh, a, a real expert, uh, particularly in the gut and and the and, and the microbiome. And for those listening, you know, and I've I've shared this many times on the show, and I've interviewed a variety of experts, functional medicine doctors. We're gonna about to have Dr. Perlmutter. We've had uh, Dr. Mark Hyman, Dr. Terry Walls. But uh, the gut has been a real passion for me because you know, in the context of Peak Mind, which is the namesake of the show. I realized with my father, much of the of the health of the brain is actually rooted in the gut and the enteric nervous system. And I know that, given the, the modern lifestyles we we lead, it is extremely challenging to maintain a thriving uh, gut, and that it's it's a yeah. profound and complex ecosystem. And I know that you're an expert in this area, and so it's it's a, I was really keen to to have you on to sort of break down sort of what is the microbiome for those that don't know and you know how do we optimally uh, maintain and and even create a thriving microbiome yeah so really important question and, and the gut brain connection cannot be overstated I actually did a, a TED type talk in New Zealand a couple of weeks ago and it was all about how an unhealthy microbiome becomes the most toxic thing to the brain. And we'll, we can go into details of how that actually occurs. But the microbiome in general is basically the collection of organisms and all of their genetic elements 
um, that exists in and on our body. And, and these, are, these go beyond bacteria. We're talking about fungus and uh, protozoas and viruses and so on. And the, the important part of it, which rarely gets emphasized, is the genetic elements component of it. Mm. You know, and that's really important to note because we used to think that all of everything, everything that happens with us, all our functionality, our disease risks, all of that stuff was coded in our DNA. Right. And, and our DNA was really kind of the blueprint for who we are, what we are, how we function, how we exist and what our health and wellness is going to look like. But that is really not true at all. Our DNA really codes for a small percentage of who and what we are and how we function. You know, I'll give you an example. Before they did um, the Human Genome Project, which was something actually that was going on when I was still in school um, and doing postgraduate research work, they were they estimated that the human genome would have somewhere around 230,000 functional genes in order to cover all of these functions that we knew we, we had the capability of doing. As it turns out, we've got about 22,000 functional genes. So about a tenth of what we estimated would be in there. You know, and so then the question becomes, well, how, how is it that we are at the top of the evolutionary ladder? How are we at the top of the food chain when we have so little genetic material? Because you compare that to something like a rice plant that has about 38,000 functional genes or an earthworm that has over 30,000 functional genes. We're about half as sophisticated as an earthworm or a rice plant when you look at our wow. Right? It's crazy when you think about it. So then to answer the question of how are we as cool as we are, how do we develop this technology that you and I can sit across the country and talk to one another, um, you know, it's, it's super interesting to, to delve into that aspect of it. And what you come to find out is that the microbial genes in our system um, account for almost 90% of all our metabolic and biological activity. So we've got over three and a half million bacterial and other genes in our system that we actually use. So most of our function is dictated by bacteria. And that's the microbiome. That's a big part of the microbiome, the bacteria within our system and the genetic component that they hold. So we want to be really careful. And we can get into non-GMOs and all of that stuff, but that's where some of the issues with what we expose ourselves to, what genetic elements we expose ourselves to, can, can really uh, become a problem because we have to consider these millions of uh, microbial genes that are in our system that we need to function as a human. Beautifully said. So if I were to distill that down for the audience, um, it sounds to me like what you're saying is, you know, we, we've had a premise that, uh, our genes control our destiny. Ostensibly, mm -hmm. as, as what I'm hearing is we actually have uh, – our genes control our destiny a lot less than we thought. Um, yeah. We have far less complex uh, a genome structure than we actually initially thought and that we're, we're in this phenomenal symbiotic relationship with uh, a great many bacterium uh, which are actually enabling our highly evolved functioning. And Absolutely. So, so then by deduction, I would presume that – Maintaining those bacteria, especially the healthy bacterium and the ecology uh, and the, frankly, the epigenetics, aka our lifestyle, will have a far greater uh, consequence on the, the caliber of our lives and, and how we evolve. Uh, is that a fair assessment? 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, to dig into that a little bit deeper, um, you know, it, it becomes critically important for us to, to understand the impact of things that impact our microbial ecology, right? So, um, you know, there's a term called a holobiome, uh, and that's what a human is. That's a new definition for what a human is. Holobiome is, uh, is defined as a superorganism. Mm. So what we are is we're really an ecology uh, that consists of thousands of different um, organisms that make up thousands of small ecologies all over the body. So your eye has a different ecology than your than certain parts of your skin, than your urogenital tract, than your gut, than your hair, than your blood system. You know, for example, we used to always think blood was sterile, right? We always used to think if, if 20 years ago if a, if a doctor found bacteria in your blood, they would freak out. Because uh, they would think you're you're having a, a you know bacterial sepsis or poisoning, blood poisoning. Uh, as it turns out, for every five milliliters of blood, we've got about a thousand bacteria cells, and we have about five thousand milliliters of blood in our system. You know, so we are loaded with microbes and all of their genetic elements. And and the moment we start to understand the impact of decimating our inner ecology. Um, and the, the impact that has on our overall health, that's when we can really start to understand disease and start to uh, protect ourselves against disease. And here's another important note. Um, what's great about all of this discovery, the best part of it to me, is that we know that disease is not a destiny for us. In, you know, it's, we're not destined to be ill. Um, we can actually avoid and curb many conditions that were thought to be incurable uh, by understanding the microbial evolution of that disease. Like take Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or dementia, for example, right? Those are all they're devastating diseases. They impact families in, in really devastating ways, and they impact tens of millions of people in the Western world every single year. For the longest time, they were just thought to be a genetic defect, something that's passed down from generation to generation. We don't really know why it happens. Oh, it's just aging. Your brain just gets weak. You have neuronal die-off. Well, that's not the case. There's actually a significant driver in the gut for all of those uh, conditions. And as we understand that, we can start to look at the opportunity of curbing our risk or even uh, resolving those conditions. Yeah, I, I, I shared with you prior to us uh, jumping on, my father has dementia, and one of the things that has been uh, hugely illuminating in my journey is sort of looking at the role of the gut. And just with him personally, you know, realizing I remembered when I was a boy every day, you know, him taking antibiotics, uh, excuse me, not antibiotics, antacids, which I know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, are corollary uh, based on some of the functional medicine doctors I, I met. But also just the, the foods, frankly, the food pyramid mm -hmm. we now know is all wrong. And, and a lot of the you know guidelines that that generation grew up with are all wrong. And so what we're seeing as I looked around the world is we have a whole new you know generation of disease that's lifestyle born. And yeah. and then and those diseases you just mentioned are prolific in the developed world, right? Like actually the healthiest guts are in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, where they're where they're exposed to more of the, you know, uh, of, a, of a of a traditional natural way of life and more of the diversity of bacterium in the soil, etc. whereas we yeah. because of all the pesticides we've been spraying and our modern diet and lifestyle uh, have created these new, this new kind of category of disease, maybe not created, but made way more prolific, this new category of disease, which are in, in many ways, having had direct first-hand experience with a family member with dementia, 
Um, it's so valuable for me to share this information out because, yeah. frankly, it's what scares me the most. Absolutely. It's one of the most uh, scariest diseases because, you know, you're there, your body may be actually, um, you know, functioning the way it's supposed to, but you've lost yourself, right? And that, that uh, you've lost your identity, you've lost your recognition of loved ones, you know, that uh, losing your mind is the scariest thing, I think. And that's one of the number one fears for most people who are aging um, is, is that onset of dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, and, and like you mentioned creating diseases, we've actually created diseases for ourselves over the last three decades. You know, if you look at 30 or 40 years ago, we had about 18 or 20 autoimmune diseases that were known that, that, were actually documented that people had and suffered from and there were names for them. Now we've got over 110 autoimmune diseases that we've created in the last three or four decades that we now have to deal with, you know, and and these didn't exist prior to um, the, in, the super industrialization of our ecology, of our environment, of our food system and all that, um, you know, so we, we've done a great job of screwing up our system uh, in a way that that has real, real impact. And here's the analogy I always give people, right? So we talk about a holobiome. Uh, we are um, a walking, talking rainforest is what we are. We are made up of thousands of different ecologies, a lot of it are microbial ecologies. So we are a microbial construct. And we've taken this microbial construct and we've put it in an antimicrobial world. And so we have been shooting ourselves in the foot for the last 50 years. And, and so, you know, seeing pandemics of things like asthma and allergies and autism spectrum disorders and autoimmune diseases and all that, it's not a surprise when you look at the origins of these conditions. Wow. Okay. So let's, for, for, the, for the people listening, let's get sort of, uh, let, let's dial it down into like sort of practical tips or play sort of what's the playbook knowing this information, yeah. right? So if you, if you, if you, if you're like, okay, wow, this is, this is wild, right? Like this is far more complex than I ever thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet I have control of my destiny yeah. and, uh, and you were to look at, uh, you know, we live in, in a, in a, in a very quickly evolving world, which doesn't exact, isn't exactly mindful of the integrity of the environment. And I know our, yeah. the, the, the integrity of our soil is also integral to the integrity yeah. of, cause as, as within, so without. And, and one of the things, unfortunately, I think in modern culture, we've forgotten is the connection between us and our, and, and the world around us. But as there's an, uh, a, a broader assault on the environment and the food, which is our great greatest medicine, yeah. what are the ways that we can think about um, preserving, protecting, and even creating a thriving gut? And and I'll say this yeah. particularly, you know, I, this is extremely relevant for me at the moment because, and I and I'm, I'm guessing for many of the listeners because I actually did an assessment and found out that I currently have leaky gut, which I know is is yeah. pretty. Uh, prevalent in our culture, and many people don't know because there's no there's no marker like there's no at least at least for me there wasn't a physical symptom. I just did a microbiome test and realized oh, okay I have leaky gut, which if gone unchecked could cause the leaky brain and the deleterious consequences I've seen, for example, uh, you know uh, in this precipitous slope. So I'm really keen on sealing my gut. Add to that um, when I was out east, I got bit by a tick and I saw a target rash. I didn't want to wait and find out if that was Lyme, but I just literally yesterday just completed a month of antibiotics, 
which yeah. I wouldn't traditionally take because I know that an antibiotic, unless of course in critical like this situation, sure, uh, yeah. have an irreparable consequence on the gut. So how do we rebuild? Well, give, give me a protocol for, for protecting and or rebuilding the gut for those that are really interested in creating this thriving ecology. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the, there's a couple of categories of things we have to think about when we when we think about our own inner ecology and really outer ecology as well, because the microbiome on your skin and so on are extremely important. But your gut is essentially the central command center for the rest of your your microbiota. So your microbiome in the your general tract, in your lungs, in your in your blood system, in your skin, all of those are controlled and influenced by your gut. So Focusing on the gut is a smart way to go about it. So there's a couple of categories of things, and this is kind of what I do and what the research supports, is um, number one is reducing exposure, and number two is increasing exposure. So both are important, right? So Exposure to what? So that's the key. So reducing exposure to what? So reducing exposure to things that are known to have a um, long-term systemic effect on your ecology. So um, start with the foods that you eat, right? So we know that the Roundup, the glyphosate, all of these herbicides and pesticides actually act as antibiotics. And they are some of the worst types of antibiotics because they specifically kill good bacteria and allow bad bacteria to thrive. Like the antibiotic that you took would, would actually kill virtually everything, and then everything kind of bounces back to some level. Um, but these, these low doses of uh, pesticides and herbicides that you get in your food will actually slowly change your ecology in such a way that just the bad bacteria really end up thriving. You know, and your good bacteria get overly suppressed. It's a it's the worst kind of antimicrobial you can imagine. And so that kind of you know slow long-term exposure with you know a few hundred ppms in food each time or parts per million so a ppm stands for that has devastating consequences over time. So in order to try to avoid that, there's a couple of techniques. One is of course going organic as much as you can, right? We all know that organic costs more and people don't necessarily understand the value of it, but there's twofold to the value of organic. Number one, you're going to reduce your exposure to those really harmful herbicides and pesticides. Number two, you're going to create market demand for more organic so that we get less use of those herbicides and pesticides in the in the agricultural industry in general, right? And that's really important because that stuff stays in the soil for up to seven years, you know? So even if you're getting food from an organic farm, there may still be some residue of that stuff in the in on the food because that was used on that soil before it became an organic farm. But you will minimize your exposure to it. Also, all of those herbicides and pesticides get into the water system. Yeah. They get into the water table. They get into the rivers and streams. And so our exposure level to those go through the roof. I mean, studies have shown they found um, glyphosate, the, the active ingredient in Roundup, in the cord blood of newborn babies. You know, that's the one place we don't want that stuff, right? It has such a huge impact on things like, uh, you know, the fetal development and infant mortality and all that. But that's how pervasive it is in our society. It's everywhere. So just choosing organic will help push that stuff slowly out 
of our environment, out of our waterways, out of our food source, and, and maybe, you know, a couple of generations from now, our environment will be completely free of that stuff. You know, hopefully that's what we can do as a uh, current population right now. The second thing would be to try to grow some of your own stuff. You know, uh, one of the big things that we push and I push a lot is trying to develop your own gardens, you know, and even if you live in an apartment, having like a little garden box in your window, even if you're making, if you're growing just a couple of cucumbers and tomatoes and a few things of your own, it makes a huge impact in two ways. Number one, um, the biodynamic soil that's in the garden, assuming you're doing a normal biodynamic type of gardening, that soil actually sequesters carbon from the from the environment, right? In fact, the biggest carbon sequester is going to be biodynamic soil, um, but we don't have much of that because most of our fields aren't biodynamic anymore. And then number two, you're also reducing your exposure by consuming the stuff you make yourself, you grow yourself. So it gives you, again, a little bit of a reduced exposure level. Uh, the other things to reduce your exposure of is in your your, your normal drinking water, tends to have chlorine and fluoride in it. Those are antimicrobials. So every time you're drinking water, that's going to kill off some bacteria. Um, so you want to try to put a carbon filter on your water somehow to get some of those active uh, components out. The other part of it is cleaning up your, um, your personal care products. So the vast majority of personal care products have really powerful antimicrobials, antifungals in them to keep that stuff preserved uh, on the shelf for years, right? So they have three, four year shelf lives. Um, those things will get absorbed through your system. It will get absorbed through your skin. It will enter your dermal mucosa. It can get into your body even though you're using it on the outside. So your shampoos, your, your lotions, your toothpaste, all of these things, you've got to go as clean as you can and as simple as you can. And you definitely don't want any consumer uh, products that have antimicrobials in them. You know, if, the, if you have soaps at home that say they kill 99.9% .9 of bacteria, you definitely don't want that anywhere in your home. In fact, one of the active ingredients in, uh, in antimicrobial soaps was banned a couple years ago, something called thimerosal, because they found that uh, antimicrobial soaps uh, and all those antimicrobials draining into the, uh, the sewage system were creating um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria uh, in the environment because of the thimerosal, right? So these are things that, that have been used in our uh, personal care products in our environment that didn't have um, any context on how it impacts our inner ecology. So clean up your consumer, uh, your, your uh, products, your, your personal care products. Um, try to move as much as you can to organic foods. Um, eat those as much as you can over non-organic foods. Um, and then see if you can grow some of your own foods. That all, all of those things will reduce your exposure. And then one more thing that's really important about your home environment is um, you don't have to sterilize your home. That's one of the biggest mistakes people make. You know, studies have shown, there's been a couple of large published studies that show that households that use chlorine-based cleaners um, that to sterilize their home have kids with much higher incidence rate of asthma and allergies um, and also viral infections and so on. We need a microbial ecology within the home itself. Um, and there's, a, there's something called a Finnish allergy study that compared a town in Finland 
to a town in Russia that was just about 100 kilometers apart. And the town in Finland actually has a really high prevalence rate of al- allergies and asthma versus a town in Russia that has much lower. And geographically, they're very similar. Um, they, they looked for, I think it was a couple year long study. And what they found was the biggest difference that drove the allergy rates in Finland was that the homes were sterilized. So the people in Finland were, were obsessed with cleaning their homes with all of the antimicrobial cleaners and that cleaner smell was, was in their mind, uh, the, the, uh, the sense of cleanliness. Um, and then they also had the doors and windows open less compared to the town in Russia that did not sterilize their home and had their doors and windows open more. So you're getting microbes coming in from the outside into your home. So from in my home, for example, uh, we basically clean countertops and surfaces and all that with a bottle of water, a spray bottle of water. We might put a couple of drops of essential oils in there just to give it some smell. We spray it and we just wipe it with a cloth. Um, you know, and, and the countertops, if you bring home a chicken and you're cutting chicken on the counter, raw chicken on the countertop and that liquid oozes it, uh, oozes on the countertop, you want to sterilize that because that liquid may have salmonella and things like that. So raw meat, you want to clean up that area. But outside of that, most of the surfaces in your house don't have to be sterilized. So if you do just those few things, you will be dramatically reducing your exposure to things that devastate your inner ecology. So that's the uh, reduced exposure portion of it. Beautiful. Yeah. So then, of course, we have the increased exposure side, which is really important. We want to increase our exposure to microbes, right? So um, studies show that households that have six or more people tend to have overall healthier people than households that have two or less. Right, and that's because of that interconnectivity between um, humans and our ability to share microbes with one another. And it may be just for a fleeting moment with a hug, uh, or it could be living in a household with with an individual. And this may be important to you right now, Michael, because uh, there was a study that was that was published by a researcher at uh, Johns Hopkins University. And what he did is he followed people who took a course of antibiotics. He looked at their microbiome before the course of antibiotics and then after the course of antibiotics. And then he followed them for another six months after the course of antibiotics. And what he found was uh, certainly after taking the course, the, the microbiome was disrupted in a significant way from their baseline, which is not surprising. But he also found that uh, up to six months after the antibiotic, the disruption was still there. But here was the crazy part of this study. This is what was fascinating to find out. He, he also measured the microbiomes of people that lived in the same household as the individual who took the antibiotic, but these people were not people that took the antibiotics. They just lived in the same household. And he found that those people also saw the same disruption in their microbiome from the one individual taking the antibiotic, right? And their disruption was also present up to six months after. So it's absolutely insane. It's mind-blowing, right? So I call it the, uh, the, microbiome, the microbial cloud, right? We're all familiar now with the cloud that we download and upload stuff into all of the time. In your household, in your little micro-environments of the people that you're closest to, you share a microbial cloud, right? So let me give you an example of how that is possible. Um, all of us hopefully go to the toilet and we, we, we defecate, we poop. And so when you, when you go and you, um, you defecate in the toilet and you flush the toilet, there's a vortex, right, that spins the, the fecal matter around. 
that vortex has been shown to create an aerosolization of your fecal bacteria into the air. And then that fecal bacteria gets sucked into the ventilation system and then gets blown back out into the, uh, into the environment. So we actually are sharing fecal microbes just by being in the same house. If you look at dust, right, 90% of the, the, the physical matter of dust, household dust, are human skin cells. And when you think about human skin cells, for every one cell that you, that, that's on your skin, you've got about 30 microbes on that one cell, right? So if you look at the, mat, the dust matter in your house, if you don't dust for a day or two, you see everything gets covered with a thin layer of dust. 30 times that volume is, a, is bacteria all over your surfaces, you know, and we're sharing this microbes together. Right. So so we inevitably share microbes. And that's a good thing. Right. Because, again, the studies show that the more people are in a single house, the healthier everyone is because we're sharing more microbes. People are going out in the world and bringing microbes into the household and sharing it among one another. And in fact, there are microbes in your gut that increase your altruistic behavior that cause you to hug other people and be closer to other people physically because they want you to share uh, that microbial community. So it's it's really important that close contact. And then in your case, for example, because you took a course of antibiotics, then you also have to treat everyone else in your household as if they took that course as well. And everybody needs to go through a gut repair system. You know, and this is one of the most important messages I give. I do talks at uh, the Autism Autism One show every year uh, because it's such a com- uh, complex connection between the gut and autism spectrum disorders. And one of my biggest messages to the moms and the dads that are taking care of the autistic child is that they put so much effort and function into doing all of these amazing, correct things for the child. They don't do it for themselves, Mm. right? Because it it takes so much effort. And that's totally understandable. Um, But they let themselves slack as well. But if they are unhealthy and their microbiome is unhealthy, that acts as a continued negative impact on your loved one as well. So in order for them to get the best response out of the things that they do with their child, they have to do those same things for themselves as well. So collectively, they improve their bacterial community, their home. So what's, what's blowing my mind, and this is blowing my mind in, in a variety of ways, um, but you know, I, I truly do believe existentially in the fact that we are all interconnected and interdependent. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's this adage that you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. That that right. that you're saying that that's literally the case, and actually not just do the the behavioral aspects, right? Because in this sort of personal development world, there's this notion of surround yourself with people that help you elevate in terms of how mm-hmm. they live their lives. But it sounds like there's actually a biological element to that as well, if I'm understanding you correctly. In that the people you're spending the most time with literally change the bacterium that constitute who you are as well as your adaptability, thriveability in the world we live in based yep. on how they treat themselves. Um, and, and I think it's fascinating because, um, you know, I have done a deep, you know, I read things like Grain Brain and Brain Maker and heard of these studies with different twins, one of whom was healthy and one of whom wasn't and actually right. taking some of the – for example, the bacterium or fecal matter from the healthy twin into the unhealthy twin and, and actually that reversing their, you know, like having exponential consequence on their health uh, yeah. by sharing that healthy bacterium. 
Um, but and that was obviously that was sort of a, uh, a a treatment protocol. But just actually in in the way that we live, the nature of the ecology of our ecosystems and how we have direct exposure to the people we spend the most time with, actually constituting the very essence of who we are. That's yeah. mind blowing. Absolutely. I mean, uh, more and more we're finding that there are microbes within the within the gut. Um, who create neurotransmitters that make us more um, akin to be close, physically close to other humans. You know, that's one of the devastating things of the modern technology uh, environment that we live in, where we can be connected yet completely physically separated, right? Um, whereas a, throughout the vast majority of human evolution, we were forced to be close to one another um, in or as a community, as a, as a village, as a structure, uh, in order to perpetuate the, the health and wellness of the whole. Um, you know, the old saying, it takes a village. I mean, there's, there's real biological context to that. And, and there are studies that show that your microbiome determines whether you are a glass half empty or glass half full person. And we all want to be more optimistic. So, that, so there's real um, links to the idea that if you hang out with somebody that's a, that is a glass half full person, if you spend a lot of time with them and you're intimate with them and not intimate in necessarily a sexual way, but even platonically, meaning, you know, you, you're physically close to them, um, that that sharing of microbes can actually change your perspective on how you see the world. It can make you a glass, uh, make you into a glass half full person rather than glass half empty person. So the, these things are real, you know, and, and the evidence for it is, is just now coming out. Um, and, and we're starting to, to gather the importance of community, uh, you know, beyond uh, what we used to think about what community is, right? So now we know that physical contact or physical uh, proximity is a very important part of community because there's a microbial community that we've been ignoring. Okay, I'm absolutely loving this because I'm 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 going deep on relationship and the caliber yeah. of of relationships, and I actually think one of the crises of our time. I, mean, I think many of the systems that we have in our modern culture have uh, are, are are antiquated in some in some ways. Yeah. Um, but but I think the way that we relate to each other. So I, I lived. I don't. I haven't shared this with you, but I lived in Sri Lanka for for two years when I was in a very formative period of my life, basically nineteen, yeah. and then I went back on a Fulbright scholarship at twenty one. And what was mind blowing about my context there was, um, you know, the impetus was I had seen so many of my peers in college have some kind of dis-ease or disorder, right? Like, mm -hmm. and on some kind of medication, right? Like OCD, ADHD, you know, and, and I'm not saying that there weren't sort of, you know, rationale behind that, but I just was like, wow, our culturally, we, we have a lot of quote unquote dis-ease yeah. Um, and I wonder if in other cultures it's potentially perceived differently. And so long, long story short, I went to Sri Lanka and what was fascinating is I studied with a traditional healer and in that cultural context, there was no word for privacy and there was no word for possession. Mm -hmm. uh, literally, there were no doors on the home I lived in. You know, the, my grand, my, my little sisters, my nangis literally worshiped their grandparents every morning mm -hmm. before bed, every night, you know, every, every night before bed, every morning before leaving the house. And it was perceived, my, my, my teacher taught me, that actually wellness or dis-ease dis was considered imbalance and, yep. and balance was health. And health was not an individual's health. Health was the collective health. And yeah, so literally yeah. if one person 
fell out of balance or into dis-ease, it was the role of the entire community. I mean, they would spend two weeks creating an entire cultural context to ritually recreate their shared worldview from sunset to sunrise to bring one person back into balance. Of course, the, role, the perception being that the, 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 one, the sum of the one is the equivalent to the sum of the whole. Yeah. And if one person falls out, everyone falls out. So what you're saying is, is sort of a further reification biologically of, of a profound wisdom, which I think was, was often the case within the kind of many of these indigenous worldviews that, that we've yeah. lost in our modern technologically advanced societies. Um, and so I'm just kind of like my mind is blown because the biological aspect of this uh, I hadn't fully thought through. Um, yeah. but, it, but it basically sounds like there is actually a biological corollary and that that we are, in essence, the sum of those we spend we, we, we do we are we're not just, just just not just like mentally but like biologically the sum of the people we spend the most time with I knew we I knew we to your feel good glass have full context I knew that we generated the majority of our serotonin in our guts right like, like the neuro yeah. the neurochemicals that actually do make us feel good but I didn't actually have I hadn't yet connected the psychological biological corollary um so anyway, I'm just kind of like I'm loving I'm loving uh, this conversation, and I'm loving the the context of thinking about okay, what what how so okay so you you gave a context into the ecology as it relates to our our home and some yeah. of the strategies one could take. Um, is there is there are there biological strategies? I mean, you're mentioning it obviously in the context of parents, for example, with their children, which I think mm-hmm. is hugely important, and. You know, like you may you may care for your child uh, in a profound way, but actually to do so, you should be taking care of yourself, which oftentimes yeah. is neglected. Are there any other biological corollaries as it relates to relationships that you could share that people could take to sort of optimize their health as it relates to their relationships? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a few other things. I mean, we um, we like take oxytocin, for example, right? It was one of my favorite hormones that that that's been discovered. Uh, oxytocin does so many amazing things in the body. One of the one of the things that it does that's really important is it actually brings down the level of stress hormones. Mm. Um, you know, and and you actually see this. I, I actually grew up in in India, not too far from Sri Lanka, um, until about high school, and so I see a lot of those same corollaries that you talk about. Um, with the with the way the community structures are are um, outlined out there, but one of the things that that uh, and I remember this now that I understand what they're doing. But you know those gurus or those sadhus in India, the the, the men that have dedicated themselves to reaching you know enlightenment and, and having this kind of pure simplistic life. One of the things that they do, and I can't remember the Sanskrit word for it, but they use oil and they kind of rub their thighs mm. uh, for twenty or thirty minutes every day. Right. And so now the studies that show that a oil rub, uh, whether you do it yourself or you go for a massage, um, actually significantly increases oxytocin and reduces stress hormones in a really major way. Um, and reducing stress hormones is a major um, way of curbing leaky gut, because one of the biggest drivers of leaky gut is stress. 
you know, and in fact, that was a 2015 study published in the Frontiers of Immunology, um, where it was a meta-analysis paper. They looked at all of these toxic drivers of leaky gut and intestinal permeability and all that, and they concluded that stress was probably the number one driver of leaky gut. And that leaky gut, the way the type of leaky gut that stress created, was was a major driver of chronic illness. So they actually con- concluded that stress through leaky gut was the was the biggest factor in morbidity and mortality worldwide, right? It was the biggest cause of morbidity and mortality, which is mind blowing when you think about it. Um, and so, you know, so one one of those things is the the whole idea when you greet people, like I'm a hugger. When I see people I know, I like to hug. Um, you know, that increases oxytocin. Uh, when you compliment other people, when you're kind to other people and you see their, grati- their gratitude in your face, that actually triggers oxytocin and it brings down stress hormone levels. So, you know, that whole like aggressiveness of driving in traffic and honking at people and feeling victimized when somebody cuts in front of you and all of those things, they're, they are devastatingly toxic to your system because that rise in stress will start separating your intestinal lining and allowing all of these toxins to leak through into your system and lay down the foundation of chronic inflammation that is the foundation of 90% of chronic disease. You know, so just that biological aspect of it, of changing the way you react to things, changing the way you interact with the people you see, um, you know, the, the complimenting, the hugging, the being closer to people, um, all of those things have stepwise improvements in your overall health and outcomes. You know, and here's another thing, getting a dog, right? So there are studies that show that households that have dogs uh, tend to have kids with lower incidence rate of asthma and allergies and so on. Dogs are wonderful. They go out, they sniff around the ground, and they pick up a whole bunch of bacteria. And then if, if you let them sleep in your bed, they're going to leave all that bacteria on your bed for you, which is a great place for that bacteria to be. Uh, so you come in good, intimate contact with that bacteria. That can have such a profound impact on your overall outcomes, right? So think about if you're going through a really difficult autoimmune disease. You're working with your doctor, and you've got all of these treatment plans and so on, and that's perfectly fine That's what, that you should be doing that. But then just following one or two of the things from the reduce exposure category, you know, changing out your soap, changing out your shampoo, and then uh, following one or two things from the increased exposure category, which would be something like getting a dog or, um, you know, going out in, in, and, and kind of playing in the dirt more, going out in hikes in the wilderness more and not sterilizing yourself, um, you know, and hugging people more when you see them. Just those few adjustments can make the treatments that you and your doctor are working with be significantly more effective because you are changing your constitution, you're changing your ecology, and that dysfunction in your ecology, the imbalance in your ecology, was the primary cause of your disease in the first place. Wow. I love it. Um, uh, profound, profound uh, thoughts, and I'm, 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 I'm sort of taking it all in, and I what, – what – there's a the question that is evoked for me is it's it, I'm I'm loving the corollary between the mindset the biology and how they all impact kind of who we are and our and our overall health. Yeah. To to distill down into um, you know if you're thinking about sort of a lot of this is rather high level. If you were to do a protocol to um, 
to sort of rebuild a leaky gut, right? So say say we've had an assault. Um, obviously, obviously applying say all the all of the recommendations that you've shared thus far as it relates to changing out, for example, soaps. Uh, you know, being more mindful, uh, potentially encouraging other types of exposure through whether it be walks in nature, a dog, what have you. Um, what are some of the other ways that you can sort of reconstitute, for example, the gut lining so that it's not mm-hmm. quite as permeable and encourage a, a greater ecology? So, for example, one of the things that I realized, I, 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 this is based on research I've done. Please correct me if any of this is incorrect. But as I understand it, um, a lot of your gut microbiome is established very early on, for example, mm-hmm. in how you're born. So, for example, those who are vaginally born will take in and have a greater diversity oftentimes of bacteria than those who are cesarean. I was an emergency cesarean birth. so uh, yeah. And I know one of the things that they're doing now is more like vaginal swabs to encourage that diversity. Mm-hmm. But at, at the time, I, I, you know, that, I, that wasn't really uh, prevalent practice. Uh, as well as breastfeeding, I know for some mothers, including my own, that's more ch- that can, that was more challenging. So I, you know, so th- these are some things that early seed, if you will, the microbiome. Um, that some some of us, especially those who grew up in an era where like formula was encouraged, etc., like yeah. ne- didn't necessarily have. Um, and so I know that there, those are early kind of formation markers. And then obviously, you know, many of us, there's a profound overprescription, in my view, of, of antibiotics culturally. And I know yeah. that any course of antibiotics you, you take will change the constitution of your, of your microbiome. So for many of us in the Western world, uh, we have had, for lack of a better term, almost an assault on that ecological system. Mm-hmm. And some of the underpinnings of the forest, so to speak, of the gut, uh, a.k.a. the intestinal walls, lining, etc., cetera, um, need to be reconstituted. Um, and I know, for example, things like collagen aren't necessarily prolific in our diet because, like you said, we're no longer hunter-gatherers and we're no longer eating all parts of an animal. If we do eat animals, a lot of us are vegetarians. Yeah. Um, so what do you – do you have an overall protocol or thoughts around how you can start to – for lack of a better term, do your best, right? Like mm-hmm. this is, you know, you, you can only do what you can do to sort of encourage a, a diverse, if you will, like I studied permaculture, you know, I know culturally yeah. we've moved more, you fly over the United States, I think one of the challenges we're facing is there's monoculture everywhere, right? Like, right. and a lot of it is sprayed with pesticides, as you said, and so our soils are being depleted, which is obviously the, the earth's microbiome, if you will. Um, yeah. And so that's having profound effects on our own microbiome. But how do we create that diversity, uh, that permaculture, if you will, where you have that interdependence, that symbiosis that you're talking about um, in the gut and, and sort of create that the, 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 the tenants, if you will, of optimal wellness within? Yeah. So uh, that's really the, the focus of our scientific work is on, uh, on answering that very question. Um, we have uh, the only published human clinical trial showing the ability to, to alleviate and seal up the gut in 30 days. Mm. And it's published in a major gastroenterology journal, in the, in the World Journal of Gastrointestinal Pathophysiology. We published that first study in August of 2017, um, so a couple years ago. And uh, since then, we've got numerous other studies that we've done, and, and a few of them are going to be publishing this year. So the focus is this. What, what's really great about the gut is your intestinal lining uh, can basically turn over in 72 hours. 
you know, you can have a totally new intestinal lining, new mucosa, all of that in a very short amount of time if you have the right microbiome to do it. So what's interesting about the gut lining, so the cells that make up your intestinal lining are called intestinal epithelial cells, right? So they're essentially like what I call soldier cells because they're standing there shoulder to shoulder. It's one cell thick as a lining. It's not a very complex barrier because it's only one cell thick. Um, and that's the major uh, lining that separates the outside of the world, uh, which is all the stuff that's moving through your digestive tract, with the inside world, which is uh, your blood system. Um, and then on top of that soldier cell layer, you've got this mucosal layer. This, uh, this mucosal layer also acts as a physical barrier and also as the major site of sampling all of the stuff that's entering your body. So all of the things that enter your body, whether it's food particles or antigens or bacteria or viruses that enter through almost any orifice, whether it's through your digestive tract, your skin, your ears, your nose, um, all of those things go through the mucosal layer first. And in the mucosal layer, your microbiome and your immune system, um, you know, basically samples and, and um, reviews that material and figures out whether or not it has to attack that material or it leaves it alone. It has tolerance to that material. In, in the case of food intolerance or intolerance or allergies, the immune system is gone dysfunctional where it sees whatever the antigen is, whether it's ragweed or pollen or peanuts or dairy protein, and then it decides to attack it instead of leaving it alone and having tolerance to it. That's basically what an allergy is. It's, it's the mucosal sampling of an antigen, and your microbiome and your immune system has gone haywire, and so it's attacking all of these things it's seeing. So the important thing is that mucosal layer and the intestinal lining, and how do you repair those two things? So in order to repair those two things, you have to understand what controls them. Right, So basically, the microbiome and certain species of bacteria within the microbiome control the mucus layer and control the intestinal epithelial lining in terms of repairing damage that's been done. So there are a few strains called keystone strains, and these are really important because these are strains within the microbiome that basically hold up the rest of the, the, the community structure, and these are also strains that have a direct inverse correlation to protection of the human host. So Acromantia mucinophila is one of them, right? So Acromantia mucinophila in a healthy microbiome can make up five to seven percent of the total population. A single strain can make up that much of the total population, which is a really uh, strong indicator that it's a very important bacteria. There's another one called Fecalum bacteria prosnitsi that's also a keystone strain that can make up, again, up to five to seven percent of your total microbiome. So imagine you're 100 trillion or so bacteria in your gut, almost 10% of it can be these two strains. That's how important they are, right? But they're also very sensitive. They're strict anaerobes. They're very susceptible to antibiotics. They don't exist anywhere else in the natural world outside of our gut. You know, these are not bacteria that are found in food sources, in the soil, and so on. These are very important keystone strains that are found in the gut. Acromantia, for example, is inversely correlated to everything in the uh, metabolic syndrome uh, spectrum. So 62 different diseases it protects against. It can actually reverse diabetes 
there are interventional studies that shows that if you, if you engraft or increase the growth of, of acromancy in the gut, you can actually reverse the process of diabetes and metabolic syndrome. You know, that's how important they are. Fecalum bacteria does all of this stuff with gut lining and inflammatory bowel disease and colorectal cancer and so on. So it protects against all of those. The reason I'm explaining all of them is because it's important to note that these two types of keystone strains are really important to regenerating your mucus layer and your intestinal lining. Without those microbial players, you really can't do it. You can throw all the glutamine you want at it, you can throw all the micronutrients at it, but if these microbes aren't present at adequate levels, then you're going to have a difficulty in sealing up that gut. If you get them to adequate levels, you can seal up the gut very quickly. So that's the good news. So in our study, what we did, uh, we took about 100 college students, and these were what we call healthy normals because they did not have any disease states. They weren't being managed for any conditions. They were not obese. They were just perfectly healthy young people, average age around 22. We screened them for leaky gut, especially the most inflammatory version of leaky gut called metabolic endotoxemia, um, and, and we found that 55% of them had severe leaky gut, right? And they would never know it. Like you said, it's subclinical. You don't have any symptoms of it. But what's occurring when you have that kind of leaky gut is every time you eat food, you get this huge increase in toxins and it measurable, which we measured, and, it, and the university that we work with has shown in previous published studies that with people with that kind of leaky gut, uh, which is probably similar to the leaky gut you have, um, it takes your body almost two weeks to recover from the inflammation from a single meal. And it almost doesn't matter what you eat, even if you're eating healthy, just the process of digestion alone causes enough uh, turbulence within the gut and, and, and disruption that it leads to all of these toxins and food particles and all that leaking into your circulatory system. All of those things can end up in your brain, in your knees, in your joints, in your organs, and trigger inflammatory responses all over your body. Right, so what we saw with these subjects with leaky gut is when we give them a meal, we saw about a six-fold increase in toxicity and inflammation in the body within five hours of eating that meal. And that inflammation will last up to two weeks. From a single How do you meal. prevent against that? Is, it, is there a process of fasting? Like what do you do to – because that sounds like to me uh, like a, just a dangerous cycle because it's like mm -hmm. even if you're doing all the right things like – Yesterday, I went to like Whole Foods and I bought all the vegetables, all because I, you know, I got the bone broth. I'm getting, mm -hmm. but but at the same time, I'm like, okay, well, if I, you know, if I take any meal, it's, it sounds like I could be having the best intentions, but if I have a leaky gut, any food I intake could actually be causing inflammation in, does, in a yeah. deleterious way. So, uh, so what do you do then? Yeah. So what we did in the study, um, we, we took the people that had the severe leaky gut response and we gave them this spore-based probiotic. You know, we, we gave them these bacillus endospores. And I'll talk about why we even thought about the spores being able to resolve this issue. Um, and they didn't do anything else. So for the next 30 days, they're being college kids, which means they're doing nothing good for themselves, right? They're still drinking. They're still stressed. They're still eating fast food. They came back 30 days later, and we saw um, a near complete resolution of the leaky gut. And, and all of the inflammatory markers all dropped down significantly. We saw a restoration of the gut-brain connection. Uh, we saw changes in metabolic hormones. All of these changes occurred in a 30-day period of just adding in those bacteria 
into your diet, into your system. Um, and then we worked on a bunch of mechanistic studies to figure out exactly how these spores are doing that. One of the ways in, in, in which it does it is it dramatically increases acromancia and fecalum bacteria growth. In a separate study that just published, that we uh, that we just published, um, I think in um, a pharmacology journal, um, we showed that when we add in the spores, we increase the growth of acromancia and fecalum bacteria, those those important keystone strains, by between a hundred to a thousand fold increase. You know, we're not talking about doubling or tripling; we're talking about a hundred to a thousand fold in three weeks. Right, so these really important keystone strains in people that have really severe leaky gut, uh, those strains tend to be down at really low levels. In, in fact, uh, in some cases, undetectable levels by even the most sensitive assays that we have. You give them the spores for three weeks, and now all of a sudden you've got a thousand-fold increase in these bacteria, and it correlates with the sealing up of the gut, the complete reduction of the inflammatory response during eating, the, res the res uh, resuscitation of the gut-brain connection, and so on. So all of this stuff, it's, that's in our uh, gastroenterology journal paper. Um, you know, what was awesome about that, when, when the journal saw this paper, they actually published it as something called a frontier paper, because every few editions they publish something called a frontier paper, which means it's like a new discovery, a big step in, in a particular field of science, because they had previously published numerous papers showing the devastation of leaky gut and this long-term chronic inflammation, but they've never published a solution. And so this is the first time they published a solution. Um, so it's just the spores. And what's interesting about the spores is the mechanism of action is they significantly increase the growth of those keystone strains. They significantly increase the diversity in the microbiome. Uh, one of the papers we just recently published shows we can increase the diversity of the microbiome by about 40% just by adding in these four or five strains into the system, right? And, and that's a huge impact on your overall gut structure and health. And then they also dramatically increase the production of short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, propionate, and acetate. Butyrate in particular is one of the most important things to healing up that gut and stimulating the regeneration of that mucus layer. Um, and, and your enterocytes, uh, the, which are the cells that, that make up the intestinal lining, their number one fuel source in order to regenerate themselves from a devastated uh, leaky gut is butyrate. That's their number one fuel source. And the main way to get butyrate is through the right type of fermentation in your large bowel. Uh, and these spores increase butyrate production by about 150%. You know, So that's how we came about to the idea of resolving leaky gut. We went back to the basics and we said, okay, what is prevalent among people in leaky gut? What is devastated about the gut? Okay, it's the mucosal layer that's devastated. It's the intestinal lining that's devastated. Well, who controls the regeneration of the intestinal lining and the mucosal layer? Well, it's some of these bacteria and then also the diversity in the microbiome and the production of short-chain fatty acids. Those seem to be the most important factors in regenerating your gut lining. So then we worked and found these spore strains, and the reason why we went with spores is because they can naturally survive through the gastric system and get to the intestines alive, and they also have this unique capability called quorum sensing where they read your microbial environment. They can find pathogenic or overgrown bacteria and actually bring their growth down by producing up to 25 different antibiotics in that little microenvironment, and then they actually produce all these prebiotics to grow 
your underperforming healthy bacteria. So they seem to modulate the microbiome. And we knew this beforehand and we said, okay, if they can modulate the microbiome, increase short chain fatty acids, increase acromantia, fecalum bacteria, maybe they can solve leaky gut. And so we did this first study and we published it and showed absolutely they resolve leaky gut. And now we're doing another uh, 90-day larger version of the study with some new variables to see if we can make things improve even more uh, and also understand some of the other mechanisms behind it. But that's really it. You know, that's you can do that. And that's 30 days. Uh, and these and these college students weren't doing anything else that was good for them. You know, so if you make all of those other lifestyle choices, if you if you reduce your exposure to things that, that devastate your microbiome, if you increase your exposure to bacteria, whether it's through contact with other people, with a dog going out for a hike, um, you improve the, your, the diversity of your diet, you clean up your food source and then you take these spores your microbiome is going to go through a whole new revolution and, and, and see a significant change. Oh, man. I love it. Uh, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty much all that. So I mean, one, of the, one of the reasons I actually moved out to uh, Los Angeles was for access to nature uh, for mm. a variety of reasons. Uh, most of them were more around my, my mental health, but I didn't realize yeah. quite how much my mental health obviously was correlated to, uh, no question, the biological factors. Totally. Um, uh, so I, I love that. Um, I would. I'm, I'm very much interested in getting a dog in the not so distant future. Mm-hmm. Um, the. I mean, there's a variety of different pieces that you've broken down here. I know, though, which is wild. So, what's interesting is you didn't even know this, but you know, I've been on this gut journey for a little while since I d- discovered the research. I went to the. Uh, the Institute for Integral Nutrition, and then I followed my friend James Maskell, who runs actually a, a consortium of different functional medicine doctors who, who took me to basically a gathering of all functional medicine doctors. I think I was one of the only doctors not there and kind of nerded out. But um, uh, I met a woman named Tanya who actually worked with a, a company, a lab company, and that's who actually where I did my gut test. So I did a cognitive test, cardiac test, gut test, and I just I thought it would be amazing to get a, a full-on assessment. But in that process of the microbiome test, that's actually where I discovered I had the leaky gut. So I've mm. been on a journey. Interestingly enough, Tanya, uh, which you did not even know, I didn't even know until because we were connected through 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 a friend. But you know, you do have uh, a company that, that that creates this the spores that you've tested clinically. Um, yeah. And before I was even connected to you, I had those spores, which I now. But what's interesting is I I do also have like uh, four or five other um, four or five other uh, probiotics, etc. But what I've what I've learned from talking to other folks is that not all probiotics are created equal. So right. and and I think part of it, as I understand it, goes to what you're saying in regards to the survivor survivability, for example, and also those the the sort of the thriving of those keystone features. So I've been taking now the Thrive probiotic. Can you can you kind of um, you know t- t- you know without sort of going too crazy, but like what 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 is the efficacy? I mean, if someone wants to uh, augment their their probiotic and have sort of best in class and know that it's working in the way that you discussed in terms of that, because I, for example, 
um, I want to take the next 30 days. I've just taken 30 days on an antibiotic. So I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I want to take the same commensurate treatment now to rebuilding. And I know, you know, it's not perfect, but I've gone after, okay, I've got the, I've got the healthy veg. I'll be doing the practices you mentioned, like the hikes, etc. You know, I live luckily close to the ocean. So I'll be going out barefoot doing all the, you know, I want to get dirty. I want to take in the healthy food. But I also know that like, like you said, I don't want to eat a healthy meal, but like have a have a gaping hole in my gut, so that like that can cause inflammation because that's the source of all disease. So, um, or many diseases, not all disease. But mm-hmm. uh, so so what is so so? Give me the context on what is a quality probiotic or supplement as it relates to the spores and yeah. how and how 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 people can basically get access to that which works as opposed to that which may not have uh, the same efficacy. Yeah. You know, I started studying uh, the probiotic industry and probiotic products in general. So I'm uh, as trained as a microbiologist, and I had a research company before we started developing some of these products. Um, And I was actually uh, tasked by a large multinational company to study probiotic products and claims and and figure out, really, they wanted me to come come to them and say, here's the next generation of what would be the most effective probiotic. So I went through the gauntlet and looked at everything on the shelves and tested them and studied them and basically found that the vast majority of them had a major problem, and that was the survivability, like we talked about. We we took about 40 uh, of the top-selling probiotics and put them all through a uh, gastric situation or a simulated gastric solution, which is kind of a standard U.S. pharmacopoeia methodology for testing things going through the stomach. And we found that about 98% of them completely were, were killed off in the stomach. You know, and so it, it just kind of blew my mind that, um, you know, all of these bacteria that people are buying with the hope that they're going in and colonizing the gut and doing something uh, beneficial, most of those are dying in the stomach and you're basically just pooping them out, you know, eight to 10 hours later. And so in looking at that, we said, okay, there's got to be some bacteria that, you know, um, have this natural capability of making it through the digestive system and getting to the site of action and actually colonizing. And our, our simple question was, where did our ancestors get their probiotics from? You know, clearly we have this very intimate relationship with bacteria, and we've been exposed to bacteria in many contexts throughout the course of human evolution. But there are certain bacteria that play an important role in in having an an effect in the gut that leads to health outcomes. And so we look then at the environment because our ancestors are smart enough to eat dirt, right? They didn't sterilize their food. They didn't sterilize their water and all that. So they got huge amounts of exposure to ubiquitous environmental bacteria. Now, when you look at environmental bacteria, the vast majority of them are also going to die in your stomach. Um, Most of them aren't going to make it through and act as a probiotic, but just getting some exposure to them in general is good for your system. But we kind of honed in on bacteria that had the natural capability of surviving through this harsh gauntlet called the stomach, uh, the stomach and the bile salts and the pancreatic enzymes, which are all designed in, in, in a particular way to kill bacteria. So we found that in the outside environment, there are these bacteria called bacillus endospores. And these bacteria are actually at a, at a hundredfold higher concentration in the gut than they are in the outside environment. And so as it stands, there are a number of studies that publish 
that showed that these bacteria are gut commensal bacteria, but they use the environment as the vector to get from host to host. And, you know, like, like you talked about earlier, the vast majority of your bacteria that live in your microbiome you get from mom during the birthing process, right? Passing through the vaginal canal, the breastfeeding, the close skin-to-skin contact, that's when you start to establish your microbiome. And a lot of those bacteria come from mom and, of course, some from dad as well. But beyond that, the rest of your life, you're exposed to the environment. And these are gut commensal bacteria that use the environment as a way to get into the host. And so, and then when you start looking at what they do in the body, it becomes really fascinating what we've outsourced to them. So they do things that we cannot do for ourselves. For example, they come in and they use this quorum sensing, which I think I mentioned, which is a way of bacteria reading the bacterial uh, ecology, the landscape. So they can read what other microbes are there and at what concentration, and they can identify pathogenic bacteria, they can identify overgrown opportunistic bacteria, and they'll actually go sit next to them and produce compounds like antimicrobials to actually kill off those bacteria or bring their levels down. And then at the same time, they produce compounds to help grow your your good commensal bacteria. So they create this microbial shift and balance in the ecology. And that to us was a really fascinating aspect of them. They've actually been used in the prescription drug area for over 60 years in Europe, Latin America, and, and Southeast Asia to treat dysentery and gut infections. That's how effective they are. So in lieu of an antibiotic, which basically is an atom bomb and uh, destroys all the microbes, these are like sending in the SEAL Team 6 to find <laughs> the bad bacteria. They will go in there and find them specifically and get rid of them without harming the other bacteria, and in fact, with increasing the growth of the other bacteria. So for us, it stood to reason that if we utilize these bacteria as probiotics, maybe they can restore balance and diversity to the microbiome. And if they do that, maybe that helps with healing things like leaky gut and reducing symptoms of autoimmune disease or even putting people completely in, um, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in a cured state from autoimmune disease or even things like we just completed a study with acne. Um, we saw about a 45% reduction in acne lesions in taking this probiotic for 30 days. You know, and that's being submitted to the British Journal of Dermatology um, because it's such a profound study that shows this gut-skin connection, you know, and, and we had mechanisms and all that worked out of how that was done, uh, how the gut had changed, the changes in the gut, how that impacted the skin. So we've got about 13 human clinical trials going on right now in many different areas, uh, but it all started with our clinical trial and validating the resolution of leaky gut. And we found that these uh, four strains were, were extremely important in, in their own consortium in order to be able to go in and make all of those environmental and microbial changes in the microbiome. Um, and so as far as what people should look for, number one, the probiotic has to survive through the digestive system. So any probiotic you buy, they, the company has to show you evidence, um, you know, whether it's a simple study or, or whatever they might have to show evidence that the probiotic actually survives through the gastric system and gets to the site of action alive. Then here's the second, the important part. Uh, and this is where even the high-end, higher-level end probiotics in our market uh, tend to fail, is they don't have studies on the combination of strains that they use, right? So they'll call a product a clinically studied product, but what that means 
is they're using studies on each of the individual strains with the assumption that this study has been uh, this strain has been studied on its own and it has this benefit. This strain B has been studied on its own and it has benefit, and uh, so on and so forth, up to ten different strains, and then they combine all of them together and presume that the whole thing is clinically validated when it's not. You know, you can't take two, three, four strains that have been shown to be beneficial on their own, combine them together and assume that the collective is beneficial because they could have antagonistic mechanisms in the body. You know, we don't know. You won't know until you actually do a study on the formula itself. And that's where we had really kind of set ourselves apart. And we said, there are so few probiotics on the market that have studies on their finished formulas themselves, the actual product that the consumer or the individual will be taking, um, we need to, to focus on doing all of our studies with just our formulation without doing individual strain studies because at the end of the day, it's the formulation that matters, right? And then any probiotic that has to be refrigerated is not going to survive through your gut. It's not going to survive in your body. That was actually one of the first things I did when I started investigating the probiotic industries. I'd go to health food stores and ask people, you know, what are your best probiotics? And they'd always point me to stuff in the refrigerator. And, you know, and I'd say, well, why is it refrigerated? And they said, well, because it's, uh, it's, it has to maintain a live culture. And you have to keep it refrigerated in order to maintain the live culture because that's what makes it so effective. And so I said, okay, if it sits at the sh- on shelf at room temperature of 70 degrees, it's going to die off. And they would say, yes, so that's why when you buy it, take it home and put it in your refrigerator. Don't let it sit in your car, your countertop, put it in there. So then my question always was, if it can't survive at 70 degrees, how does it survive at 98.6 degrees in your body? (laughs) You know, and going through acid rain in your stomach, right? And so nobody ever had an answer for me. None. I would be that annoying uh, nerd guy calling these companies and asking to speak to their scientists or asking for validation of how it survives through your gastric system if it can't survive sitting on shelf. And so, you know, so that that's all kind of been marketing stuff, you know, that's been generated. There's been little to no science around all of that. So um, so that's that's the way you want to think about probiotics. It has to be shelf-stable. It has to survive through your gastric system. And it has to be a probiotic where the actual formula you're taking has been studied, not a probiotic that has four or five or six strains that have been studied on their own right. and now is combined in a particular way with the presumption of efficacy because you don't know what it's going to do in your body. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's ostensibly you have to have something that has been demonstrated as is, as a formula, not yeah. just its ingredient. Or, okay, well, this one thing worked this way, so we presume that the combination it has efficacy. Um, Absolutely. And one, one more important point about that, you know, in this kind of bit of a circle composition, we talked earlier on about um, the importance of being mindful of the genetic elements that you're putting into your system, right? Because yeah. your microbiome's genetic pool of over three and a half million genes is is really the genetic pool we tap into for about 90% of our metabolic activity. So if we screw, screw up that genetic pool in some way, we could likely screw up our own metabolic activity. biochemical capabilities. So one of the things that scares the crap out of me as a microbiologist and someone that does clinical research on probiotics is when I see products that are, you know, 15, 20, 30 strains, and they have 200 billion, 300 billion, 400 billion cells in them. And, you know, imagine you're taking those same two, 300 billion cells and all of their genetic elements, and you're inundating your system with those genes every single day. 
and none of those products have been studied in 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 that combination to see what that impact is long term on how it affects our gene expression. You know, it's not a natural thing to be consuming two to three hundred billion CFUs a day of lactobacillus bifidobacter and all that. It doesn't happen in nature. You know, our ancestors did not get exposure to that kind. That ha- occurred during the birthing process with those particular types of species. So it always concerns me when I see these, uh, when I see products that have really high doses of bacteria. Because remember, we're adding in all of those bacterial genetic elements into our system that are effectively outside bacteria. Uh, and we're doing it at such a high rate, uh, which is which is unusual. So we have to be mindful of that. And, uh, you know, if, if you're going to use a really high dose product, we want to make sure that the product itself has studies behind it. And in particular, studies that show what its impact is on the rest of the microbiome, you know, because uh, you could be taking 200 billion of some uh, collection of bacteria that are supposedly good. But if they reduce diversity in the rest of the microbiome in long term, you're going to have problems. Right. So that's why we do the studies we do. We do clinical studies to look for clinical outcomes. But then we're also doing mechanistic studies to see what is the actual impact of those spores on the rest of the population of the microbiome. Because if we don't know that, then we could be actually setting ourselves up for um, a disaster down the road. I'm glad you use that. We used the analogy earlier of the the sort of uh, atom bomb versus the sort of SEAL Team 6. It's interesting because if I'm honest, like – there's a piece of me that was like, oh, you know, like, oh, maybe I should just take the more, more is better, right? Like yeah. since I, since I just, since I just decimated my, my, all these bacteria with my, um, with my, uh, antibiotics, you know, yeah. I should probably just get as many different kinds of bacteria and as many as possible, you know, and just like, you know, the, the more the merrier, so to speak. But what yeah. I'm hearing from you, and I'm so glad that I'm, I'm asking now, as opposed to, uh, going down that track real far is. It's actually not necessarily the more the merrier. That's not necessarily how ancestral our ancestral populations would have been formed, and and actually, in some ways, it's about the collective and how they come together, as opposed to again like this, just put in as many inputs as possible because you have no right. idea how that's going to affect um, us in terms of the diversity. Let, let me ask you this yeah. question because so I'm taking. Um, I'm taking uh, the, also the prebiotics yeah. and uh, and K2 and the probi- probiotic. Now, I know that all those are quote-unquote good for my gut, but if I'm totally honest, I don't, I don't necessarily know the most efficient and effective way to utilize like the prebiotic, for example. I know the benefits, yeah. for example, of K2, but can you share uh, for the audience kind of what the benefit of each of those elements are? And yeah. when, you know, because I know also with food, like there's now new science around circadian rhythms and, and actually when you eat is in some ways, uh, I don't want to say as important, but potentially very it is, important yeah. as it relates to what you eat. So yeah. uh, break that down for me. Yeah. So uh, the prebiotic is really important, right? So so for your audience that may not be familiar with the difference between a prebiotic and a probiotic, a probiotic is, of course, the bacteria themselves that uh, conduct the function. The prebiotic acts as food for the bacteria. Now, one of the problems I saw with prebiotics when I started studying them in the marketplace is many prebiotics are just kind of general fermentable carbohydrate foods for bacteria. The problem with that is those types of prebiotics can feed bad bacteria just as well as they feed good bacteria. 
So like in your case, if you have a dysbiosis now because of the exposure to the antibiotics, you've got an overgrowth of certain opportunistic or unfavorable bacteria. If you just throw in a prebiotic that's a general prebiotic, those bacteria will feed off of them just as well as any of your good bacteria, and it'll, it'll proliferate that dysfunction. And so we saw that as a significant problem. So we wanted to create a new category of prebiotics, what we call precision prebiotics. And so we designed the prebiotic around the area, around the idea of specifically feeding the keystone strains that we talked about earlier. The acromancia, the fecalum bacteria, the bifidolonga, the rumnococcus. These are the really important microbes that tend to suffer the most when it comes to antibiotic exposure. And, and when you bring back their growth, they seem to bring back the growth of all of these other beneficial bacteria because they are the keystones within your microbiome. And so our uh, prebiotic that we design is uh, our oligosaccharide-based prebiotics, and we've selected oligosaccharides that have been clinically shown specifically to feed those keystone strains because they have a unique structure, branching structure to those oligosaccharides that only those strains have the enzymes to break them down, to utilize them. So when it comes to the prebiotic, you actually just started with your probiotic and the best time of day to take it is actually, that's kind of what I have in here and um, for your audience that's not, not looking at a visual, but I have a shaker bottle and what I do is sometime in the late morning when I'm ready to break my fast, I, I typically do intermittent fasting every day, when I'm ready to break my fast, I mix up a shaker bottle with, a, with water and a scoop of the prebiotic and I sip it through the rest of the day. And what we find is that when you, when you take small increments of the prebiotic over a period of time, over a few hours, you get actually better utilization of the prebiotic in the gut. If you take too much at once, it gets pushed out faster than the bacteria can actually use it, so you actually don't get full utilization of the prebiotic. So this is what I kind of sip on throughout the, the from the late morning uh, through the early evening. Um, and sometimes what I'll do, instead of doing a full scoop at once, I'll do half a scoop in the morning, and as I'm sipping through it and I refill my bottle, uh, in the late afternoon, I, I put the other half scoop in there, and, and that's also my drink when I eat my first meal of the day. Um, and then, so you don't have to be that specific about when you take it. You can just kind of sip through it. Uh, my, my recommendation is sipping through it uh, through, the, through uh, the day period. So you don't have to do one drink of all of it and take it all in one shot. Beautiful. So that's for the prebiotic. Now, what about yeah. the K2? Can you break that down? Yeah, so the K2 is important to take it uh, in what we call BID, so in the morning and in the evening. So you want to take it about 10 to 12 hours apart, um, the, 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 the dose. And so um, you always want to take it with food. Same with the probiotic. You always want to take the probiotic with food, not on an empty stomach. Uh, with the K2, the reason why it's important to take it with food is because um, any fat in the, in the food will help the K2 absorb. So K2 is a fat-soluble vitamin, and it, and it basically, um, you know, uh, agglomerates with the fat in the diet and then gets absorbed through K2 transport system. Uh, so it's important to take it with food. Same with the probiotic. You take it once a day, uh, but you can take it with any of the meals of the day. It doesn't seem to matter what time of day you take it. Uh, a lot of people just choose the largest meal of the day and take it with that. And what is the, for those that don't necessarily know, what is the benefit uh, for K2? Like what, how is K, what is the efficacy of K2 on the system and why is it an, an amazing uh, supplement? Yeah, so K2, to, I, I've been studying and working on K2 for about 15 years now. To me, it is the quintessential supplement and it is arguably the most important nutrient 
to supplement in your system. So here are some of the things that K2 does. K2 is the only compound in your body that removes calcium from your soft tissue and from your vessels, right? The biggest driver of cardiovascular mortality is arterial calcification, right? So calcium builds up in your arteries, in your circulation. There's one, there's one protein in your vessels whose job it is to remove um, calcium that settles into your vessels, and that protein is called MGP, matrix GLA protein. That protein is a vitamin K2-dependent protein. The only way that protein becomes activated is by the presence of vitamin K2. So the vitamin K2 is the only thing that removes calcium from your arteries. Uh, vitamin K2 is also the only thing that sticks calcium onto your bone. There's another protein on your bone called osteocalcin, which acts as a glue to actually grab calcium and form the bone matrix. That osteocalcin is also a vitamin K2-dependent protein. So without vitamin K2, you can't stick calcium on your bone effectively. Uh, vitamin K2 is also critical for your mitochondrial function. It sits in complex two of your uh, mitochondria, and it dramatically increases electron transport, which dramatically increases the production of ATP from every single cell in your body, including neuronal cells and muscle cells and so on. Um, so vitamin K2 plays a significant role in, um, in neuro, uh, uh, neuronal degeneration diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and even dementia uh, because it helps regenerate the neuronal cells that make up your brain cells and your central nervous system as well. Vitamin K2 has also been shown as, uh, as a, a really important nutrient in preventing the onset or reducing the risk of onset of diabetes. It, uh, in large studies like the Heidelberg Cohort Study, which is a 13,000 patient study, it reduced the risk for all forms of cancer by about 25 to 35%, including prostate cancer. In the Rotterdam study, 4,800 patients studied over 10 years, um, taking vitamin K2, even a minimal dose, reduced cardiovascular mortality by 50%, right? There's nothing else out there in the world that can reduce cardiovascular mortality by 50%. In the Nurses Health Study, this is a 90,000 patient study, right? Over something like 20 years, it showed that vitamin K2 reduced uh, fracture rates in perimenopausal and postmenopausal women by over 90%. Uh, so it's it's the most important nutrient. It it's absolutely critical for your vessel health, for your nerve health, for your bone health, for your muscle health. It's also concentrated high in the highest amount in your brain in the body. So your your brain requires a lot of vitamin K two in order to function uh, and regenerate itself through you know die off of cells and produce the energy the brain needs. All of these things. And here's the crazy thing: everybody in the Western world is clinically deficient in vitamin K2 because we get none of it in our diet. We get almost zero. So naturally where vitamin K2 comes from is it comes from eating organ meats like uh, liver, kidneys, brain, uh, but we don't do that anymore. It comes from certain uh, fermented foods like uh, natto, which is a fermented soybean in Japan, or certain fermented cheeses in Northern Europe. Those are really rich sources of vitamin K2. We don't get any of that in our diet. Studies have shown that the Western population is clinically deficient in vitamin K2, and in fact, that correlates with the increased uh, prevalence of cardiovascular deaths, of osteoporosis, of dementia, of cancers, and so on. So to me, when you, when you look at vitamin K2, imagine a single vitamin that can reduce cardiovascular mortality deaths by 50%. 
If everybody in the U.S. started taking vitamin K2 today, over the next 10 years, we would save 5 million lives from cardiovascular deaths. You know, just a simple vitamin. Uh, that's how important it is. And again, we get none of it in our diet. It's incredible. Um, it, it's wild. So I, one of the folks I interviewed was uh, t- Dr. Terry Walls, and she, as part of her Walls protocol, so she cured herself of progressive MS, which is mm-hmm. which is theoretically uh, well impossible or very very difficult um, using diet and lifestyle. And part of yeah. her protocol is actually consumption of organ meat. That was part of what enabled yeah. her. She literally moved from. Uh, you know, degenerative, wheelchair-bound, uh, you know, not looking good to a year later through a protocol, you know, basically riding a bike, uh, which is pretty miraculous. But yeah. a part of her protocol is the organ meat. And I've actually thought about uh, that. But to be honest, you know, maybe it's the Western tastes or whatnot, <laughs> but I, I have a hard time stomaching yeah. uh, the idea I of liver and brain. So, so, right. so I like the idea of, of getting that supplementation. It's also interesting. Again, I'm not a doctor. I don't want it in any way. Like, you know, everyone should consult with their physician. But what I, what I did find with my dad around research is, you know, he had had cardiac issues that predated his, his cognitive issues. Yeah. And uh, he was on statins up until yes. like three, four months ago, which are highly, highly prescribed uh, around cholesterol reduction. Now, uh, uh, again, I'm not a doctor, but I did do a variety of research. And what I, what a lot of the functional medicine doctors I talked to is statins have an inverse correlation. I mean, basically, that the more statins you take, you're, you're depriving the brain in a way of, uh, of the cholesterol it needs um, in terms of healthy functioning. And so... For someone with dementia, uh, you know, it was it was kind of a, a one-two punch that that likely wasn't necessarily serving him. So my uh, the doctor recently took him off of statins because he doesn't have the same uh, cor- coronary risk associated. So you know, I'm sure with folks with acute coronary risk, that may be it may be essential to take statins. Right. But as it relates to the brain, uh, it's it's good to hear about uh, potential supplementation where you can actually have uh, an improved. A pr- improved effect on both the heart and the brain, and yeah. and it's not something where one is you know one is at the at the, at the stake of the other, so to speak. Yeah, no, and it's interesting you bring up statins because just a couple of years ago, a paper was published showing that one of the side effects of statins was actually um, a um, an inhibition of vitamin K two recycling in the body, hmm. and so statins actually inhibit the function of vitamin K two. Which, in in a sense, will increase your risk for cardiovascular disease. So, the number one prescribed drug against uh, to prevent cardiovascular disease may increase your risk for cardiovascular disease, and and in fact, could be part of the explanation why ten percent of people that take statins develop diabetes mm. as a side effect, and that in part is maybe the reduction of vitamin K two's function in the body. Um, so, in that connection to the brain is also really important because if you're taking statins, that's reducing the function of vitamin K two, which is so necessary for the brain. Yeah. And so, all those years of taking statins for your dad, uh, you know, one of the consequences could have been the lack of K two function in the brain. Uh, would K two be helpful for someone who's already pretty far down the track with dementia? Is it something that still could be beneficial? I mean, I'm not at, I'm likely not. Yeah, you know, if you look at. The, Sure. You look at the Japanese work. So in Japan, uh, they actually prescribe the food natto uh, for senile dementia. And there's actually published studies on natto for senile dementia. Um, so for, for your dad, uh, and, you know, it's not necessarily going to reverse the condition, but it, it may, may certainly slow it down. 
Um, but I would say two things. One would be uh, vitamin K2 itself uh, at high doses of 300 and 320 micrograms or so a day. And then nanokinase is also an important one for um, senile dementia. That's another Na- one. That's nanokinase. Na- nano, and I've seen this, by the way. My friend Max Lugavere, who wrote a book called Genius Foods, uh, d- did a piece. I think it was on Dr. Eyes with nano. Uh, and uh, it's not very popular as i understand it outside of japan so uh it was my first exposure to it but but he articulated the benefits um his book genius foods is great actually for anyone listening um so what are these nano you said nano kalites no it's called natto kinase it's actually an enzyme Okay. Uh, product and you can actually buy it if you, if you Google natokinase um, you'll find you know on online they, they, they sell it I think uh, you know Nutricology is a company that sells uh, a brand of natokinase that's got clinical studies behind it but in Japan they've done studies on natokinase reducing the progression of senile dementia so and that's one of the key enzymes that's found in the food natto yeah. The food natto has two really uh, rich nutrients. One is the natokinase enzyme, and the other one is the vitamin K2. And so that's really important. Um, that that combination could be a huge benefit um, to your dad. Beautiful. Well, I mean, we've gone it's like way over, but I couldn't stop. <laughs> I couldn't stop, man. I, I can It's been a it's been a real pleasure uh, talking Thank with you. you. You're you're such a treasure trove of information, and uh, I'm hoping hoping we can keep. Stay connected. Love to see you when I when I pop in Chicago. Um, yeah. And also, we were connected through the folks um, at Thrive. And yeah. so, um, for the benefit of the audience, uh, I've reached out to them, and they've offered to give uh, anyone who's interested uh, a discount on on the Thrive products if they use the code Peak. So, um, super grateful for that. I know that Thrive you you put your research behind in terms of yeah. the integrity of that product. So some of the the the, the, the research that you've mentioned. Um, that falls into um, it, it, it's it's at integrity with with that which you shared, and, and those are the products that I'm going to use uh, at present to uh, to sort of uh, do this gut rebuild protocol. So wanted to I, I was really curious because as I'm about to embark on this journey, and I'm I'm super grateful because actually one one of the approaches I was going to take was sort of the kitchen sink uh, philosophy yeah, of like I'm just going to do all the things, you know. Um, and now I'm going to be a little bit more precision or if you will, sort of seal team six and, and do the, and actually I think your, your description on even how to do, for example, the prebiotics. So like previously I was just kind of like throwing them back in the morning, you know, and I also practice, uh, intermittent fasting, uh, because I know, you know, of the benefits obviously in terms of health, but I was, I was drinking it all at once. So I think also, you know, taking a more prolonged approach, which makes sense to me. I mean, it makes sense that you would seed throughout the day and obviously, you know, that piece, for example, around the spores, like previously, mm-hmm. I remember when I would go to health food stores, I was be like, oh, well, these are the really expensive ones. They must be good. They're in the refrigerator. <laughs> right. So now, now, now knowing, okay, cool. Do my K2 with food, sip, sipping throughout the day on the prebiotic. And then, you know, the, uh, and I'll do the threat probiotic as well, um, in terms of for the next 30 days. And then, uh, and yeah, I'm, exor- I'm excited to uh, report back on efficacy because, uh, uh, it's been, uh, it's been interesting also to just notice, I know our immune systems, you know, grounded in the gut, but also like what you said, a lot of our feel good, uh, chemicals and a lot of depression has been rooted to, um, gut health. And it's been interesting because, you know, I can't, I don't have any clinical backing for this, but just as a, 
antidotal. Like as I've been going through the antibiotics course, I've been noticing moments. I'm a pretty happy person, but mm-hmm. noticing moments of like, ooh, you know, like sways towards grayer skies within, if mm-hmm. you will. And uh, I wouldn't say acute depression, but definitely like, you know, uh, you know, been contending with some interesting uh, pieces uh, in terms of psychological, like depressive moments that I yeah, hadn't necessarily yeah. experienced. And I, I think that's one of the side effects of a whole class of antibiotics. Uh, those, um, the, you know, like the, um, uh, Cipro and things like that. Uh, one of the side known side effects is, uh, anxiety and depression. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. So I'm excited to get back into, I mean, I, I am grateful because I'll take that any day over a uh, potential line <laughs> totally. yeah, and, that, yeah. and, and, and now I'm excited to get back into the ecology of balance and sort of take yeah. a permaculture approach, if you will, to the ecology of the gut. And man, just been such a great conversation, especially, you know, mind blown around the biology of our interdependence and interconnectivity yeah. and the degree to which that has a role in our ecology. So here, I just want to thank you and acknowledge you and honor you for the work you're doing. And, yeah, it's uh, my pleasure. Yeah, man. I'm so grateful for it. So, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, further conversations. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay. Bye for now. Bye-bye. There you have it. Awesome interview with Kieran. I uh, meant to have this thing take about 30, 40 minutes, and we went on for about an hour and a half uh, because I just was so fascinated by the conversation. I hope you were too. Um, If you enjoyed it, please go ahead and uh, tag me at Michael Trainer. And let me know what you got out of the episode. And go ahead and leave us a rating and review uh, over there on uh, iTunes or Google Play or wherever you're listening. Um, the the ratings and reviews basically help us move up in the algorithm so that more people can enjoy this free content. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. Uh, please, as always, if you have any feedback, you can always hit me up directly at Michael Trainer uh, on all the social platforms. And, uh, yeah, if you're keen, um, again, I'm, I'm doing the Thrive Probiotics and loving them. Uh, you can check them out, thriveprobiotic.com. And if you, if you hit peak at checkout, you get a nice discount. So with that, uh, take care of your gut, my people. And uh, I hope you're out there living your best life and uh, sending lots of love from here in Los Angeles.